Welcome to The Soloist, an occasional podcast series about solo performance and solo performers. Hi, I'm Steve, Steve Greer, a theatre academic and writer, and in this episode I'm talking with Kieran Hurley, a performer and playwright whose work is kind of characterised by its direct address, by its immediacy, by its desire to speak to the people who are there and then in the room with him. He's also an artist with a really strong association with a venue um, in Glasgow here called The Arches, or I should say a former venue, as it's a space that was forced to close a few years ago. So right from the beginning of this conversation, you're going to hear us talking about The Arches as a really hugely significant space for the development of artists at the beginning of their careers. And because of its support for new and experimental work is really something that has yet to be replaced. So this conversation runs a little bit longer than the other ones in this series, partly because Kieran's so brilliant on his own work, but also because I really want to to hear him talking and us talking about the bigger picture, the bigger landscape in which artists' careers get nurtured, in which they are developed. We start off with Kieran reflecting on one of his earliest pieces of work, one that he developed there and then at the Arches while he was still working front of house tearing tickets. I guess I made this piece called Hitch that was about um, uh, an anti-capitalist demonstration. And I suppose I had, it's easy, you can impose these narratives in hindsight. You know, I suppose I had some kind of unfinished business with like stories around uh, gathered youth mm-hmm. and the sort of strange political power and potential of, of that. And uh, at the same time, also, you know, I think maybe I was one of the few people that worked in the arches that had a mutual interest in contemporary performance and uh, house music. Um, like, <laughs> it was quite a split line, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and and so I was kind of into the scene a little bit anyway. Um, uh, and I was just reading a bit around, you know, the Kill the Bill protests and all that stuff around the criminal justice uh, bill, which looks to sort of amongst other things, amongst other restrictions on civil liberties, to clamp down on rave culture. And it was passed and became law in 1994. Um, and I was just struck by, by it, like the, 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 the legislation uh, places severe restrictions on a, on a group of people's capacity to organise events, uh, unlicensed outdoor gatherings, like around music characterised wholly or predominantly by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. And to my knowledge, it's the only piece of Westminster legislation that I can find that like attempts to outlaw something based on a very specific genre description uh, and but specifically like quite a bad one as well in that like sort of most music is, <laughs> is structured around repetitive beats. Anyway, it was interesting to me that there was something um, about this apolitical, essentially hedonistic scene that mm. someone in power was threatened enough by to want to legislate against. And I thought that's sort of interesting. So yeah, I so the fact that it's seemingly apolitical, but it's drawing yeah. the fierce gaze of like political regulation, Absolute, social regulation. Absolutely. So there's something about this, about about this gathering of young people en masse that is a threat to power on some level, because power has to begin to legislate against it. And I thought that's really interesting. Uh, that tends to be, I guess, where some of my stuff starts, is like I sort of political social question like that but then ends up being kind of whittled down into something that is a a story I didn't know when I started playing around in that world that what I was going to produce was essentially a sort of coming of age story about a teenager going to a rave for the first time and coming into violent conflict with the state so that so the idea that there would be like a that kind of character-led narrative yeah can you recall what point that started to emerge in the process that you realised that there was going to be a, 
a single character's story as a thread that was running through I can't through recall it. exactly, but I remember when I was like, you know, I've I've spent all of my, important to say, career or whatever, like time doing this, like figuring it out as I go along and feeling constantly like feeling like I might be about to be found out for not knowing what I'm doing. I think it's something to do with graduating with a theatre studies degree, man. Do you know, like, those RCS guys get a get a, get a a vocational training. Like, we all come out and we go, like, I could write you an essay, like, if you want. But, um, uh, uh, the, um, but who knows, maybe maybe everyone feels like that. But, uh, but, yeah, certainly I didn't know that, like, this is what I do, I make solo shows or whatever. I didn't, I also even resisted in a way that I totally don't now and haven't for years the idea that what I do is write plays. I just sort of thought, I make stuff, I don't know what it was. So I remember thinking this might be like a big verbatim play or something, and then I thought that just sounded boring and not right, and so much of making a solo show in the first place was an economic decision. It was a scale that I could make happen on limited resources, and that just kind of carried through with Beats. You know, I was like, I got more resources, because I got the Platform 18 Award, Mm -hmm. but I also, as people had said, this was good in a way that I hadn't really expected with Hitch. And I was like, I better find out if I'm actually good at this thing. Um, this thing of like standing in a room and telling stories, uh, because, uh, like being a monologuist or whatever, because like, I don't know if that was a fluke or not. So there was a few kind of reasons for going, okay, it's going to be like this, that we're actually not, it's not as pure as the artist and his muse, is it? Going, it must be this form. It's much more just like, well, I guess this is what I have at my disposal and this is the journey that I sort of find myself on. So, yeah, we'll do it like this, I suppose. But there was a lot of questions that were answered along the way. Like, I ended up sitting at a desk and telling the story at a desk. Mm-hmm. That was a decision that came about just through development. We did a wee, very, very short development uh, just downstairs at the arches in the practice room. I'm talking about the arches as if it still exists, like gesturing with my hands like that. You know, the arches over there. Oh, yeah, I um, did that as well. Yeah, it's because it is, it's still there. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, like, you know, downstairs at the arches in the practice room next to the toilets. Um, so, the a tiny, tiny, tiny little room, no windows, really low ceiling, like rehearsal space. Um, and uh, I'd been very, very clear with Johnny Whoop that what I wanted to do was something really low-key. This was a script and hand reading. It was only on for one day at Arches Live. You know, this is cool. Like, that's fine. People are used to seeing script and hand readings. But, of course, Johnny has also, you know, got his route into the Arches tech department, so he was able to borrow just, like, loads of stuff. So we just went nuts. He filled the room with these huge speaker stacks and these mad-ass moving lights and just filled the room with smoke. And it was, like, it was a small room, so it was, like, ah, it was crazy. So I had this desk just to sit at so that I could turn a script. It was just a functional thing so I could turn a script. But what we ended up finding was that it created a kind of anchor point within this maelstrom of sound and noise that he'd created around me um, and that we kind of needed it. Like, we really loved the maelstrom of sound and noise. We were like, yeah. this stays, right, in some capacity. But um, to have me sort of move around the space, like, I got lost as a performer and then the story got lost. And so I sat at a desk because the desk light and the desk gave the story a place to sort of sit and live in this big atmosphere that Johnny had created. And so then everyone starts going, oh, yeah, Spalding Grey and all, yeah, this. But it's, it's, it was just a sort of functional response to something, do you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and anyway, why am I telling you this? I guess even, like, all so many of the formal decisions in, around making the show came as, you know, different... Came out of process, came out of it. Came out of process, functional responses to just where I'm at and what tools I have at my disposal. And then before you know it, you're kind of like, oh, that's a practice, that this person has then, you know? Mm-hmm. Because by then I had unfinished business with the desk and what that does for a place to tell stories and 
a few years later made heads up. Do you know what I mean? So it's like yeah, so you start to put together a kind of like vocabulary for yourself. Or, yeah, but as you say, unfinished business. This is a really nice way of yeah. putting it. That I mean, that space of the arches. It's I have. I've managed to stop talking to students about it like it's a great party that they just missed out on. Yeah, again, no, man. It's and there's really this hard, sense eh? of, like, weird um, grief for a family member that wasn't quite my family. Like, I was just yeah. felt like it was part of my family. Yeah. Um, but the support of the Archer sounds as though, in the early stages of, like, your making, sounds like it was foundational. Like, if, if the Archer... Completely. Existed, and I think that you, so you've just started speaking to your students as if, you know, you've managed to stop speaking to them as if uh, that was a party they just missed out on. Like, for me, I kind of have this really strong sense that I was of a generation of artists that just got in the door just in time to be able to, like, that Platform 18 Award and the, uh, its previous incarnation, Arches Award for Stage Directors, if you look through the roll call of people that it supported and gave, like, a first foot onto, it's like... It's it's quite astonishing. Like I'm not saying that those people wouldn't then have all gone on to the careers that they've had in Scottish theatre without that. But as a hit rate. But um, yeah, as a hit rate, and also like, but I also we don't know. We yeah. don't know if they would have done. Do you know what I mean? And so like Cora's there, and Davy Anderson's there, and you know like Alan McKendrick's there, and Rob Drummond's there, Nick Green's there. Do you know like it's 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 big. Um, so. I feel very, very fortunate to have been able to grab a piece of that because I think it's a much harder landscape for graduates now. And for me, like, while I was an undergraduate student, like, this place, this building that we're sitting in now was absolutely where my home was. And, like, we, you know, we made friends with Tony Sweet and then we, then we borrowed the performance studio to make weird little esoteric performances outside of the course and sometimes did a whole bunch of stuff up in the G12 when that was a bit more accessible to students and whatnot. Um, but then after that, the Arches became my home, absolutely, for a good number of years. And it was my home, it was literally the, the, the people that paid my wage and it was where I went to see stuff and it was where I went to party, entirely separate from anything to do with a community of young theatre makers that I might be part of. Um and it was where the, where I had my first gigs. Like, literally the only place in Scotland that would have thought to put on Hitch. Like, the only place, and therefore the only place in the world. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a big, you know, a, a big, a, 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 a more difficult landscape for your students to go into, and also just a big sad emotional loss, you know? So, am I right in thinking, I'm just, I was trying to work out the chronology of, yeah. of works, that Chalk Farm would have come next after Dates. Yeah, which I'm not in, but it was more of a play. Yeah, because I was going to say, that was a kind of, um, uh, a collab, well, you were written by you, but working with... Uh, no, written, co-written actually by me and Julia, who, well, she, Julia writes as AJ, so co-written by me and AJ Todovan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia also performed in it. The, um, it was a little two-hander originally written for the Orimore, uh, and then it got picked up by Thickskin, who'd done a bunch of really awesome Davy Anderson plays at the Fringe before then. Right. And, and so it's the story of this kind of single mother and her teenage son in the London Riots. Yeah, 2011 yeah. Riots. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and... It was written quite quickly. It was written as quite a fast response to those events. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and a, I think you can tell that it's written... Uh, Julia was a key collaborator in making beats as well. She was my co-director and directed my performance and therefore took on some dramaturgical work as well. Yeah. Um, I think she named the character Jono, actually. Um, I think she offered that name. Uh, anyway, the... Uh, the yeah, I think you can tell that the two pieces were made quite quickly off the back of one another. They both share this kind of crucial 
teenage boy so, um, and young mother relationship, and they're both about uh, <clears throat> they're both about the 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 sort of um, seductive anarchy of young people claiming space, and they're both about the violence of the state. So, you know, and <laughs> um, around that time as well, you're making or working on another kind of collaborative, a much more collaborative show, I should say, yeah. Ranton, which yeah. is for National Theatre Scotland, again working with with Julia. Yeah, again working with Julia. Again, there she is again. Um, um, so, um, what? As I mean, maybe this is a good point to ask about that collaborative relationship amongst others. Yeah, working working with her on on Ranton and other shows. Yeah, what's What's that like? Do you have a um, Do you have a particular rhythm for collaboration? Is it a, a thing where it, you work it, in studios together, or is it, it changes again and again? And it's, a, it's about I think it's about trust, really. Like we work on each other's stuff all the time, even in kind of unspoken ways. So yeah. like, like with Julia's show Below Off, I don't have a formal role on that show, and I don't have a credit on that show. But like, I'm still going to read loads of stuff. I'm still going to see it lots and still feed in in that way. And similarly with work of mine that she doesn't have a role or credit on, like there's there's a kind of ongoing conversation there. So we began to develop a bit of a shared language so we can trust each other. Mm-hmm. I think there's something about the kind of like, you know, we spoke about with Platform 18, like, is, is these, are these directors or are these theatre makers or whatever. When you're like the lead artist on a collaborative process making a theatre show that you will ultimately perform, then you kind of need the director in that process to be someone who you trust has a sympathetic, innate, understanding and shared view on what it is you're trying to make because you're kind of asking them to be your eyes on your performance in some ways do you know yeah um so it's not so, it's not it's not that i mean sometimes you have the conceit of like the outside eye yeah this is actually a much more intimate perspective. yeah i think so and it is definitely to be the outside eye to be the directorial eye making sure that this works with all of the responsibility that is on that but that's coming do another a different part of the process would be inviting lots of trusted peers to come in and share their views on a work in progress on a closed doors work in progress. Mm-hmm. That's different than that relationship of a co-director who you need to have a really deeply shared, intimate understanding with. I think, and I think you see that. I mean, I can only talk about my experience, but you know, Rob works with Dave Overend again and again. Gary McNair works with Gaz Nichols again and again. Do you know, like, I think you can see the need for that kind of trusted relationship to be able to have someone to perform that role. So Julia was that role. Um, she was that role frequently for Hitch, although that role was also shared with Dick Bonham and Jamie Fletcher. Um, she was that role in the creation of Beats. She performed that role in the creation of Heads Up. Ranton was different because we all four of us performed together. Um, it was uh, Drew and Gav and Julia and I. Uh, so that was a kind of different beast. But the the relationship was, was still sort of fundamental to making it work. So with that, let's talk a bit about that. Like the former of, of Ranton was, I guess, a kind of Kaylee show. Yeah. Um, and its form was kind of, well, how much was its form responsive when you were touring it round? Was the idea that you were picking up stories from the places? Or was it a kind of fairly fixed core, which then... Fairly fixed core. There was one little bit in the show that was left open to be filled with detail from the place that we were uh, visiting in order to uh, imbue every performance with a kind of unique slant and uh, some direct localism. Um, but the the actual structure of the show was fairly fixed, fairly set. Um, the, that was a show that could only have come out of a research process that was well-resourced and open-ended, which is a luxurious thing. 
Um, and that was through working through National Theatre Scotland? The National Theatre Scotland invented this thing called the Auteurs Project, which was, uh, I think, brilliant attempt to try to address a kind of structural deficit in the theatre industry around how work that might not be uh, best supported through the structure of a new writing commission might be supported as well and as adequately as that work, mm-hmm. I think. And they sort of identified a bunch of artists who were making work in this kind of like, is it or isn't it like something that we can commission as a play? The, you know, performer makers, the kind of people that you might speak to for this podcast. Yeah. Um, and gave us all a bunch of resources and time to like explore an idea. And there wasn't any imperative on it being like a finished show at the end. For some of us, I think we were like actually gunning towards making a show as part of the creative process when we've got this much at our disposal. Like for me, it was more resources than I'd ever had to make a show. You know, so I was <laughs> yeah. like, well, I'm going to make a show, right? Because you give me all this money. Um, uh, but uh, but the fact that we were able, that we were encouraged to just start with a formal idea and a set of questions, and then go on a research process for it, like the fact that that was encouraged was amazing. So for me, and I, I was aware that I'd been working a lot on music in 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 my work. Both Hitch and Beats had a yeah. strong musical drive to. And live music at that. And live music as well. And I was also aware that I was doing a lot of stuff that people might call political. And I just was thinking a little bit about all the 784 stuff and the Cayley play and Cayley theatre. And was a sort of, I guess the big starting question was what, you know, the referendum was in the air and everything. And I was like, what what would a politicised 21st century Cayley play for Scotland look like now? Um... And I could talk loads about that, but that was that was where we where we sort of started. Ah, lovely. Because I mean, that is I mean, it's we I from time to time we teach or I teach like a section of the yeah. first year where we talk about um, politicised performance or or performance which has a social and political relationship in it, which yeah. technically is all performance, but yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> is is uh, um we we teach them and talk to them about about 784 yeah. and then talk about where we might trace parts of that tradition and we yeah. do talk about ranting yeah oh that's um, nice to know yeah so it's and but that strikes me as being a really huge like tradition to engage with yeah, there's a yeah. lot of weight attached to that to that name and that brand where there was yeah. no sense of apprehension about that or was there the i guess there that... was a little i mean we put in the copy like an unapologetically haphazard take on scotland's folk tradition so while there was a huge like um well there maybe was a sense of tackling something big there's also like a sense of like what am i trying to say there's also like a sense of this being a tradition that's ours like i think as a young Maybe I wouldn't have felt like that starting now. As a young theatre maker trying to make, in inverted commas, political work in Scotland, you're kind of aware that the Cheviot is this play that's hugely important and that no one outside of Scotland's heard of, right? And you've got a, there's a sense of ownership over the tradition, actually. I think, to be honest, I've never really thought about this before until being invited to think about, about your question now. I think... I think some of the early career encouragement from you mentioned Chalk Farm. I think some of the like early career encouragement from Dave McLennan was actually maybe quite big in like sort of bestowing a kind of sense that it was all, that, that it was that okay. This, like he was like our kind of um, elder point of connection to the carrying stream of this 
culture and tradition that was ours. Like he kind of self-consciously in some way said, use are the generation, use are the next gen, you know, go and do that. Like yeah. he was, and was, and was excited and enthused by that. So I think we'd been quite like actively given permission, do you know, like through that, through that, in that sense. Um, we even, but yeah, I suppose it is a bit bold and in some ways a bit cheeky. Like some, one of the early lines of the play even directly apes the opening of the Cheviot. Um, and it's done so in order to make honest the point of reference, but also to kind of subtly underline a point of difference as well. Whereas the Cheviot opens with Bill Patterson saying, this is a story with a beginning and a middle and as yet no end. The politics of what they're doing and their aesthetic is bound up in that. You know, it's an agitprop political narrative. It says, here is history presented in a singular political narrative, the way you were oppressed in the past, the way you are oppressed now, and the future, which is yours to change. That's the narrative. Um, what we found was that the same fragmented, multi-form music, song, poetry, like uh, Cayley Play, sort of populist, John McGrath, Good Night Out type form, actually, we found, well, we found that that an agitprop narrative wasn't satisfying in the sort of, I don't know, I guess you might say post, post-modern cultural conditions that we were living in. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't working, wasn't going to work for us, isn't what we wanted to do, didn't feel like the right thing to do. But that actually the form that we inherited was amazingly appropriate for containing multiplicity and difference because of its fragmented nature, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So like, um, so our play opens with, uh, this is a story with multiple beginnings and abundance of middles and no clear end. So it's, it's the postmodern TV, isn't mm-hmm. it? Do you know? But but it shares like a it seems to me shares a kind of certain like a shared lack of cynicism. Yeah, I guess there is that. Yeah, I guess there is that. There's this like, and I find it a, a quality really attractive in performance of all different kinds. Is this uh? act of faith and engagement, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, we'll chat a bit about like the, what seems to be like the recurring trope of, of theatre as a space of possible connection or collection of people yeah. in your work. But um, yeah. That was and, and, Andy Field said something similar about Hitch once. He said it was rare to see a piece of performance that was so sincere. And I don't mean that. I think he was quite keen to point out that he didn't mean that in like as dull as it sounds, you know, yeah. but like, um, yeah, I guess that's a comment that's been that's that's been that's been that's been made. Yeah. So we've mentioned it a few times already, but the um, the sh- show of one of your most recent shows, I think you've done other, a few other things since, yeah. uh, was Heads Up. Yeah. Which that I saw uh, a version of it a week before it started at the Fringe. I saw it at the comedy at yeah. the stand comedy club around yeah. the corner. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the very, very, very first preview. The first time it had ever been put in front of an audience um, that you saw. So, and that was and the script in, in hand, yeah. and it was in the comedy club, and you were sat at the, yeah, at the yeah. desk. It felt like all of the r- raw components were there, and I'm pausing about raw because yeah. it felt very close to being a yeah. very, very close to being yeah. a, a, a the show that it would be at the Fringe. Yeah. Well, I, to be honest, I think the show that it was at the Fringe was more or less the same thing, but a few days later in a different space, and then over the time I bedded into it, I actually think you saw a version of it that was. Um, so yeah, the script is there. The script stays there. The script is still there. The script we decided we decided with heads up. We decided quite late in the day. You know, with beats we kept. We used the table and a script for the work in progress, and the table stayed. You know, the desk stayed. With heads up, we were in two minds. 
And it felt like it made sense to just because of the way all the mechanics of me operating the sound from the desk was all there. You know, with heads up, I'm not really reading the script, but it sort of feels on some level useful to have it present, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, it was in the comedy club because that was where we ended up doing our previews for a whole bunch of number of reasons. I think, you know, I can say that I've done an hour at the stand comedy club got a few laughs so, you know was, i really liked it i was like why don't more people do do previews in here it was it, it worked all right you know i mean you do have to have that weird guy the weird suicide cowboy guy <laughs> behind, you. behind yeah, you yeah which was strange you know but um but that was fine um yeah uh the 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 show was made on very very limited resources actually in a very short space of time um and as such, it was all a bit of a whirlwind. So when you caught it, you were like, it felt like it was very close to being, like, the whole thing was, I didn't really know what I was doing by the time we opened at the Fringe. It was also the first time I'd ever opened brand new work at the Fringe and the first time I'd ever done the full run. Um, previously, I'd only ever done work at the Fringe that had had some kind of road test. So the thick skin production of Chalk Farm had already had a different production at the Orient Moor. Um, so I knew the play worked, even though the production was new. Um Beats had done Platform 18, you know, Hitch had done Forest Fringe. Everything had been sort of road tested in front of a home crowd before opening at the Fringe. This was the first time we'd opened something brand new. We made it very, very quickly. We called it Three Chord Punk, which is just a cool way of saying no one would give us that much money. Um, uh, and and it was the first time I'd really gone, I actually don't know what the fuck this is, actually. Like, I don't know what it is yet. And, I, and it was daunting. Uh, so I was very, very pleased that it went well because <laughs> it could have genuine, genuinely felt like it could have been one that, um, that one that didn't land for folk, but it did land for folk. So that was good. Yeah. So it's a, it's a show where you've got there's a couple of things to me that are always I think I saw it in the Fringe and I saw it mm. again at the the Tron yeah, during. Yeah. Uh, take me somewhere, somewhere yeah, yeah. take me somewhere um, which was lovely to be part of that after all that Arches history to be part of that first Take Me Somewhere festival was just like click it really, it really felt like for those first few nights yeah. particularly for for your show and for for um, Blow Off yeah. that there was a real sense of a community yeah. coming back together again in the same room yeah I really felt that and that though we were all we all fr- you know friends we'd all seen each other there was that sense of um, intimacy amongst strangers as well, which yeah. was part of the Arches, that, that, that being there was... A, a, I knew a lot of people at the Arches, but I was more often amongst people who were totally unknown to me, but somehow familiar. Yeah, it really, really felt like a home crowd, which was lovely. And, the, and you know, the Tron main space is bigger than any of the spaces that the Arches could contain, so it felt like a home crowd, which was lovely. Like, uh, yeah, so it was really special. So, yeah, that was a really... Yeah, that was a really important night, I felt. Mm. The show itself, Heads Up, has these four perspectives. Mm-hmm. The, um, the kind of chain store worker, the mm-hmm. futures trader, the schoolgirl, mm-hmm. and the pop star, yeah. the cokehead. Yeah. And there's this game you play, or not game, the structure where you address you to the audience. So you continually invite the audience to position themselves as though they are these characters. Yeah which is really lovely, really works for me, and I think it's one of the things that makes the piece so distinctive. Was that something... Did that 
positioning was that there from the beginning or did you discover that as you went into so the, it so 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 heads up has uh, a number of key collaborators so obviously mj who did the music and malcolm who did the lights uh julia was co-director again and another co-director uh, this time alex swift and me and alex were the two people in the room together for like fleshing out lots of things together in the earliest stages of development mm-hmm. and it was actually quite early on that, that we settled that this is something that we would I would do. I was like, I, I said to Alex that I wanted to write a piece in second person, and we sort of we thrashed it out a little bit, and we thought, you know, we're going to do this. Um, I think one of the main formal points of influence from it comes from the fact that one of the one of the main reference points for me in sort of thinking about what the show was going to be and why it was going to be and how it was going to be was a um, like a twine text adventure video game, uh, and I forget the name of the author of this game. I forget the name of the person who made this game, which is really unfortunate but do look it up beautiful video game called Queers in Love at the End of the World right and do you know it I do uh, and I can't remember the person's name either but we, I'll look it up I'll so stick it in the notes. so it's beautiful right um, uh, and there's something about the way that form addresses you uh, I, I mean I I don't even think I need to talk about that too much. I think if you've ever engaged with that form of storytelling, that then then you kind of know what I mean. Um, uh, and it just felt that felt right. Since writing the show, I've actually become aware that, and maybe a number of other sort of solo performers have done it. I think I think Dan Bai has written a, certainly his most recent one, Instructions for Border Crossing, has lots of time spent in second person, and I think going viral was too. But the main actual uh, reference for me was. Queers in love at the end of the world, yeah. Lovely. Uh, So, yeah, it's written in second person. Uh, Also, there's a fifth perspective, I suppose, that arrives at one point, which is the writer. In one moment, isn't it? But that's just fleeting. Yeah, um, where where the... Where... It does feel like there's a moment of contact where the writer leans forward, either physically, like literally or rhetorically, and addresses us the audience right there and now in the room yeah and it's a sort of turning the gun on myself like the image behind you is that. <laughs> um uh but yeah that show was was and uh, as i said i didn't know how necessarily it was going to land for folk partly because it was made it was made as a kind of it was made with a kind of urgent with a kind of urgency it was made out of a place of kind of like this is just the, this is how I'm feeling just now like it's a show kind of about how I was feeling yeah. I still am a little but how I was feeling when I made it and it was a show that was made out of a need and desire to be in conversation with an audience a lot of my work that we've been describing has been, was work made on quite limited resources in the early stage of my career and then my work gets bound up in slightly more long term processes like literary managers and the writers commissioned of writing proper plays and you know writing for screen and stuff and like my writing work is kind of bound up in a whole bunch of other places just now not just this solo show making Mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. and I was sort of looking at where all my work was and the structures it was all bound up in and I was just like no it used to be actually that I could get the arches to agree to give me a room and put a date in the program and I knew that I was going to make a show because there was a date in the programme and I'd had to write some copy and the show didn't exist yet. But um, I knew that at some point, because those things had been agreed and that because I knew that I, physically me, was going to walk into a room in front of a bunch of people with a microphone, like a show was going to happen. And I really felt the need for that direct conversation with another So that kind of immediacy. Yeah, and became aware that actually, while I don't need it in every process that I'm engaged in, having that kind of really clear destination-based thinking and structure around what I'm doing is an important part of a creative process for me. Something I need to be engaged in routinely, if not always. Do you know? Mm-hmm. So I was—I guess it was about harnessing some of the DIY spirit of my earlier work, um, 
And so we just made it. But it felt like a little bit of a risk just to do that, you know. Um, uh, but then I think enough other people were feeling as anxious about the world as I was for it to for it to land. Because it yeah. it's it's a show which is kind of set at what seems to be the end of the world, or yeah. at least some kind of major disruption of the world yeah. as it stands. Yeah. Um, and it was on at the same time as, at the same fringe, I should say, uh, the uh, the show The World Without Us by yeah. Adrian Goet. Yeah. And I saw both shows, and I was always, I, when I saw them both together, I was struck by how optimistic yeah. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually still is optimistic, isn't it? Even though it's like the, probably the bleakest of all of those of all of the shows that we've discussed. Um, I can't help myself, can I? I can't help myself do a little bit of like. I think I kind of think of the, the optimism of it. I kind of I think the image I had in my mind is like it's the the it's the flower that grows out of the boards at the end of cleansed. Do you know? Or like um, like there's just the, yeah, uh, which is maybe why a flower is key to the final image it heads up actually um, but yeah I didn't see their show uh, but I'm glad you were able to draw optimism from my apocalypse narrative <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I'm like I'm, I am I am personally instinctively and unavoidably optimistic yeah. and I'm conscious that makes me quite unhappy Yeah, quite often yeah. particularly in the climate of the last five years yeah it's easy for an optimist to be disappointed by the last five years isn't it it really is but i am i so i'm an optimist like despite myself yeah yeah and there was something um about that kind of affective structure mm. of optimism being something that you can't necessarily resist i think for me there's like a thing where like where I was at, where I was at when making that show was not an optimistic place. But you sort of dig into a conversation about who we all are as humans, you know, and you have to find something truthful there. And if what you find is still a degree of optimism, then that's great. But it's not, it's like, it's the differences whether you're setting out to be optimistic, which for me can so often land as saccharine, false and hollow. And so, like, I don't think heads up flinches from how difficult the world is to be alive in, you know? Like, I hope that it doesn't. Um, and if there's any optimism that people take from that, and I don't think everyone does. Like, I can, you know, you can hear the audience walking out in Summer Hall and some people are like, holy shit, that was bleak, <laughs> wasn't it? Um, uh, but, like, my hope is that, like, that it's offer of some... If there is an offer of some kind of optimism there, my hope is that it's received uh, from an authentic place because of the fact that it's not attempting... A hollow offer, a saccharine offer, and you know, like, um, if we can honestly look each other in the eye and say, like, this is it's fucked, isn't it? And we're all a bit broken, and it's all a bit fucking hard. Um, and let's start whatever conversation this is from there. Then that feels that feels like where where my work needs to be at just now. I think, yeah. you know. But yeah, that thread of optimism to do with. With connection in a, in not only kind of quite an individualized world, but a kind of, what's the word, an atomized one, mm-hmm. and that maybe is a refrain or a, or a kind of imperative, maybe even mm-hmm. of, of of your work. It feels like this space of theatre as one of encounter and connection, 
Would that be fair as a kind of I think so, yeah. I think a few years ago, actually, I had a moment where I realised for the first time, and it should be, it would be starkly obvious to anyone else that it's looked at the sequence of my work, um, uh, that I had one big idea. I have one big idea, and that was it. Uh, and that, like all of my shows, all of my work are in different ways about um, a search for and need for human connection and community and a collective in an increasingly atomised, alienated increasingly atomized, isolating world where we're alienated from each other. And that, that struggle for that is the inherent dramatic struggle of just about every story I've ever put on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's a young boy seeking meaning in the London riots or whether it's someone going to a rave or whether it's a version of me as a protagonist seeking some kind of solidarity, uh, an anti-capitalist demo or whether it's like a whole series of different disparate voices making up something weird like a country in, in ranting or, you know, like... Um, yeah, that's that's that that is the big the big idea, and I think that's what keeps me coming back to theatre. And I think that's why my solo shows to me don't feel like solo shows. I think even even when there's an autobiographical narrative, that one very rarely like, and even when I say heads up is about how I feel. Of course, it's me. Of course, there is the egotistical thing of placing me here under these lights. But I hope that it's not really about me. That's my hope, and the I keep coming back to theatre despite my frustrations with it, and I do have many. Because we're all here. And even though there's huge questions about, okay, who's here? Who actually gets to be here? And actually who's speaking? You know, and who's listening and who's this for? All of those things which make theatre a very difficult place to be, full of challenges. We're all here. The fact that we're all here, like, feels like a really good and important start still. So that was Kieran in conversation with me earlier this year in October 2017 in an interview recorded in my little basement office at the University of Glasgow. So what else to say? Oh, Beats is going to be a film. It's going to be out hopefully at the end of next year sometime during the festival circuit to maybe getting a wider release. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, This is also the last episode of the year and we're going to be back in the new year in 2018 with a new series of these interviews. So if you've been listening along so far, tune back in then and thank you for your time. For more about what I get up to and my other projects, why not visit my website, stevegreer.org. But for now, thanks for listening.